Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters. Good afternoon on this first day of December 2022, and welcome to WORT Community Radio's Community Conversation. It's titled A Public Affair. I'm your substitute host today, Bert Zipperer. Alan Ruff will be back next week. I am really excited and honored by today's guests. We have Wisconsin Public Radio's Maureen McCollum, who's the executive producer of Wisconsin Life and the co-host of a podcast called Uprooted, which you'll be hearing a lot about. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me. And we also have UW-Lacrosse Professor of Spanish and Latin American Studies, Omar Granados, who is also the co-host of Uprooted. Welcome, Omar. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It is great to have you. Um, what we are talking about today, you are the creators and hosts of a new podcast, Uprooted, the stories of Cuban-Americans who came to Wisconsin in the 1980 Mariel Boatlift Exodus. And... We, I want to talk to listeners for a moment, and we welcome your calls to join this conversation. Please call 608-256-2001, extension 9, with your questions and comments. So, I think, Maureen and Omar, we want to start off with a little clip and, and then launch into a good conversation. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, here we go. Imagine. You're a 16-year-old kid, thousands of miles from home. You've just stepped off a plane in Wisconsin. For the next few months, you'll be living at an army base. There are strangers, people who don't speak your language. It feels like you're living in prison. Your whole world has been uprooted. You think you're alone, far from family and friends, when suddenly you discover your father, who you've barely had a relationship with, is also at this military base in Wisconsin. But there's a catch. The only way you can meet him is through a barbed wire fence. This was the reality for Armando Rodriguez, who left his barracks at Fort McCoy daily to meet with his father, Guillermo Rodriguez. I saw my dad on the other side of the fence, and we talked from afar. I had two fences, and then his fence. So there were three fences. And we spent about a month and some like that. Armando and Guillermo are from Cuba and had to live at Fort McCoy until they found a home in the United States. They were here in Sparta, Wisconsin, because of the Mariel boat lift. For five months in 1980, the Cuban government opened its borders and let its residents leave for the U.S. during the height of the Cold War. Almost 125,000 Cubans fled the island and landed in South Florida by boat. And that's from the podcast Uprooted, an eight-section or eight-episode podcast that Maureen McCollum and Omar Granados have co-hosted and created. Um, We're talking about 1980. We're talking about 15,000 Cuban refugees at Fort McCoy and following their stories. Um, It's a pretty incredible eight-episode podcast. And and Omar, for you, this must be kind of personal, being a Cuban-American. Very much, yes. So, so talk about that. Talk about your connection to this podcast, please. Um, well, all the credit to uh, my my now dear friend and co- and colleague Marine, who uh, had this brilliant idea. We um, we started the podcast uh, in um, pre COVID times, and um, it all started with a. Um, Maureen's desire to do a story on um, on the Cuban community in La Crosse, uh, Cuban refugee or migrant community in La Crosse, uh, quickly realizing that it was it was not time enough um, <laughs> to cover these lives in, right. in four minutes. Um, and um, you know, for me, um, it, that I had uh, already uh, connected with that community through uh, my my previous research on on the Maria Alexis and the uh, um, you know my my field of studies migration cultural migration um, and uh, when Marine came to uh, to ask me about this obviously I was I was thrilled to bring this this um, project to a, a greater audience and and you know one one of the 
um, ways in which I've I've been very um, professional, realized, and happy has been to being able to translate my my work uh, as a researcher to uh, greater audiences, you know, to to the public. Um, obviously, this is a, a generation of, of uh, migrants who is, which is very different from you know the generation to um, which I belong. Um, there's a difference of a good 25, 30 years between us, and um, for me, it has been has been amazing to to find a Cuban community in La Crosse to get to know their reality and uh, um, to go back to that time and and revise that period of history of Cuban history and, you know, American history as well. And Maureen, you're credited with starting this. Talk about that. Yeah. So I, um, I went to college at UW lacrosse and in my time there had discovered that there was, um, a community of Cubans living in the area. And most of them had arrived in 1980 during the Mario boat lift. And I knew, I like casually knew a few people who were musicians in town and would kind of ask them about it, but they didn't really want to talk about their experience. But it was always in the back of my mind, like, oh, I just really want to know what it was like uh, for people who went through this. And like, why did people decide to stay here? Because there were 15,000, almost 15,000 Cubans that came through Fort McCoy in 1980, most left. But a handful stayed. So how, how many are in Wisconsin people, today? Would you say? Well, oh, we have a hard time really nailing down that number. Omar, you thought maybe like a few hundred. Yeah, I'm, I'm estimating maybe four, four hundred, five hundred in in the state of Wisconsin. I know there's a there's a community in Madison, and mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, obviously more people in Milwaukee as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I had always just wanted to know why did you stay? What has your life been like? Um, you know, never really gave up on the story and was very thankful back in September of 2020, I'd reached out to Omar since it was the 40th anniversary of the Mariel Boatlift. I reached out because I knew he had been doing work with this community and said, can I talk with you? Can I talk with some of the refugees? We got together. And within those first couple minutes of the of our initial interview, it was very obvious, like this is going to be impossible story to tell in four minutes. And so we created a podcast that really just follows the lives of these Cuban refugees who came to Wisconsin. So what was their life like when they were growing up in Cuba? What was it like, like making that journey across the sea? What was it like at Fort McCoy? And what has it been like ever since? Um, life hasn't necessarily been easy for these guys. And so we wanted to dig into the political, sociological factors, uh, racial factors, um, the good and the bad that all played into their lives and where they are today and what their hopes are for the future. So, so let's put this in context. Um, 125,000 Cubans leave between April and September of 1980. Um, 62,000 of them, um, because they're not sponsored um, or, or have relatives, are sent to four military camps in Florida, Arkansas, Chaffee, Pennsylvania, and at Wisconsin's Fort McCoy. And Fort McCoy has around 15,000. Um, Fort McCoy was, a, was an internment camp during World War II, where U.S. citizens of, uh, uh, who were seen as enemies of the state were, were held, then POWs, and, and more recently, Afghan refugees. Um, Fort McCoy and the other camps. When I was, um, I was very heartened to read a good analysis of the militarization of U.S. Mili immigrant detention, which is seems to be your area, Omar. Um, could you talk about the this militarization of the U.S. immigrant detention, starting in Marielle? Well, um, yes, there's um, there's um, actually um, if in our podcast we're drawing from the work, obviously, of many experts and scholars, but there's two particular. Um, experts that uh, one of them is at the University of Madison rec recently published uh, um, an edited collection about precisely um, um, the militarization of immigration in the United States and they um, actually um, talk about the Mariel Exodus as a, as a turning point in the way um, in, in the way in which it impacted the 
you know, the mindset of the Carter administration and, you know, and, and administrations to come uh, and in ways that they were beginning to see um, military bases in remote locations, uh, sending refugees coming from uh, Latin America and Central America at the time um, as a way of determent, as a way of sending a message out to to the world and, and particularly to the Caribbean and Central America that um, this this is what it's going to look like for you uh, if you know if, if you decide to my, uh, join a mass migration into the United States. So the um, the moment in which um, the moment in which uh, this uh, this the, the design of this basis uh, and the location of this basis begins to take place is what these two scholars are describing as you know the 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 beginning of uh, U.S. immigration uh, becoming militarized. Uh, um, what it does for the refugees, obviously, is that um, they're being located in a in a military base under. Um, even though these these in the case of the Cuban refugees, they were coming in as as refugees. They had uh, a pending, and we can talk more about that later on in the program. A pending status as immigrants, but. During that time, even though they're in U.S. immigration, uh, U.S. soil, they're put under the care or, or vigilance of, you know, a military force. So immediately casts these people as dangerous, as some somebody who's not, you know, who needs to be watched and who needs to be kept in a in a secluded, isolated, and and heavily armed um uh, environment so so sort of sending a message um to discourage other Correct. people from coming um maureen and omar you follow several people who go through this and they're very touching stories what what, what touched you the most maureen i think you know really big picture i coming into the story i was not you know you go into any story thinking like you have these different assumptions and i'm like oh i'm just going to hear how their lives were what i did not understand was how complicated legally many of these gentlemen's lives have been uh since arriving there's one man in particular marcos calderon who lives in lacrosse um who's been very open through this process and talking about his life um you know, but he's the type of person who, why he shares these details of his life, he's very forward thinking. Um, so he's someone who came uh, through the Mario boat lift because his family encouraged him to come. His mother told him, you do not have any opportunities if you remain here in Cuba. So while some people were excited to leave, excited for the possibilities of what life in the United States could be, he was pretty heartbroken in leaving his family. So he goes through Fort McCoy, he gets sponsored out by a family of farmers in the Sparta or Toma area. Um, it sounds like he had a really good relationship with them, a good experience. Went on to have a career as um, a driver here in the US. He studied, he studied electrical engineering back in Cuba, but um, just with language mm -hmm. issues, um, didn't pursue that in school once he got here. But anyways, he uh, faced a drug conviction in the late 80s and since then, you know, he hasn't gotten any trouble with the law, but because of that drug conviction in the late 80s, he's been, he cannot become a permanent resident of the U.S., he can't become a citizen, and he can't go back to Cuba to visit his family. And it breaks his heart on a daily basis because he cannot go back and see his family. Some of his family members have passed away because he, like, in, in the time he's been here. So, you know, learning stories like this, and there are others who have similar experiences that we talk with on this podcast um, you know, it's, it's really heavy. It's just, it's hard when, I don't know, when I take a step back and I look at this podcast, I just, I think a lot about like forgiveness, like how long do we pay for our mistakes? Um, and then, you know, you have systems working against you and we can't get answers to questions. Um, it, it's really frustrating. So, so that's something that I've really taken away. And, um, but I'm also very, just very thankful that people like Marcos and some of his friends have really opened up to us and 
shared these experiences with us and been so honest about them. Exactly. Um, callers, um, we're welcoming your calls, listeners, uh, at 608-256-2001, extension 9, to join the conversation with Maureen McCollum and Professor Omar Granados regarding the Mariel Boatlift and their podcast, their amazing podcast at WPR, um, Uprooted. Um, let's talk about the legal stuff. You, you mentioned that, Maureen. Um, in September, in uh, 1966, there was a Cuban Adjustment Act, which allowed Cubans to have very quick residency. In March of 1980, a month before the, the Mario boat lift, the Refugee Act of 1980 also streamlines that. But as soon as the boat lift happens, now things change. Um, and in June of 1980, the CHEP, the Cuban Haitian Entrant Program, which uh, creates status pending uh, option the, the the reality the limbo status and also highlights the racial aspect of this whole situation um talk about that it's complicated yeah. isn't it because <laughs> um, these, the, might... these guys are still sitting there today and they, they don't have a status right they arrived in the u.s without a status uh omar i'm gonna let you take the lead on this since you're way more articulate <laughs> articulate at it than we can do it we can do it together we can do it together and you've lived it in some ways uh yes it's so um there's a, there's a there's a little bit of an advantage for cuban um uh, immigrants uh, when it comes to um when it comes to migrating to the to the United States just because of the Cuban Adjustment Act. Basically, after you've spent one year um, in the United States and you can prove you're Cuban-born citizen and, and, or, or naturalized Cuban citizen, uh, and uh, you've been admitted by a, a U.S. immigration officer at a port of entry, that, that's all, just all that you need to get your green card or to become a, a, a resident of the United States under the Cuban Adjustment Act. And that's, you know, you're adjusting your status from, you know, a, 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 a refugee or to, to permanent residency now. And this has been in place since, like you mentioned, in 1966. But the issue with um, the Mariel refugees is that they come in um, under the the categorization of the Cuban uh, Haitian Immigration Task Force, which is uh, Cuban Haitian migrant with status pending. And what this does is that they uh, are sent to the military bases and they're, um, you know, kept until they are sponsored out of the base by a United States citizen or an organization. So, um, you know, there's a there's a, a long process that that needs to take place under very uh, um, disorganized <laughs> systems and circumstances for these refugees. And um, what ended up happening for a large majority of the people that were sponsored out of the base uh, was that they would. Uh, not understand the, the following steps of the process. So they would need to, um, you know, show up at the immigration office and, and complete certain paperwork um, by a certain time in order to be able to, um, you know, continue their path through the Cuban Adjustment Act. Now, the sponsors were also poorly informed about this. So by the time many of these refugees left the bases, uh, unfortunately, some of them uh, got involved with criminal activity. And by the time that they were charged with federal charges, um, then they're in a situation where they're unable to apply for um, the Cuban Adjustment Act because they, you know, are not eligible for citizenship or resident status anyways. And at the same time, they're not welcome back in Cuba and they, they gave up their Cuban citizenship when they left in 1980. So they're caught up in what we've been calling in this podcast, immigration limbo. Mm -hmm. uh, to this day, these men only have a parole uh, entrance into the United States. What 
we in the immigrant community referred as the I-94 or the parole. Um, but uh, that's all they have. And, and they they have um, the ability to get driving permits and working permits. But um, it's been 43 years now since yeah. since the situation is, you know, in place and the limbo seems to continue and extend. And, and in addition to the limbo and that not only unease uh, that they live through and kind of heartbreak and not being able to return to Cuba to visit, they're also facing the risk of deportation at any time. And so that's a fear that many of them who've had previous criminal convictions live with. Um, a couple of the men we talked with have been placed in deportation for months on end, but then released. And so... Uh, you know, if relations improve or move forward, however you want to surround it, just between the relationship between U.S. and Cuba, you know, we've seen articles just even over the last month about talking about deportation proceedings starting up again. Now, I think a lot of those conversations are surrounding Cubans currently trying to get into the United States, but will that start including some of the Mariel refugees who came? They don't know, and nobody... I don't know if anyone knows. And so, um, yeah, so it's a really tough situation that many of them are living in. Yeah, I was really amazed by that. I had no idea. (laughs) There's a lot of this story that many people have no idea about that has been, I mean, I learned so much through this process, even just the history of this experience, um, you know, and I would talk with, I lived in La Crosse for many, many years. I would talk with my friends or just different people in town about what I was working on. People who grew up in La Crosse had no idea that this story happened, that the situation happened just miles from where they grew up. Or people who knew some of the people we featured on the podcast were like, wow, I had no idea that Enrique went through this his whole life, you know? Isn't, so, isn't that amazing? It is. Wow. It really is. Um, the, the one thing that does come up when we talk about the Mariel boat lift is that stereotype of criminals and psychiatric patients flooding um, Key West in this. And and that really ugly stereotype um, painting, I mean, it's racialized, um, of course, um, really persists. And I, I, don't, I don't watch every movie. I didn't realize that was Scarface's story. And you highlight right. Scarface and Al Pacino, an Italian-American playing a Cuban. Um, talk about the stereotypes. Talk about the, the ugly... Um, um, stereotypes of, of the Mariel Boatlift folks. So this was one of the main reasons I wanted to do this podcast was because of the stereotypes that are out there that, as you said, when you talk about Mariel refugees, when you talk about this particular community of, commu- of Cubans, many people will say, oh, that's when those bad guys came to Sparta. And, um, you know, I wanted to really dig into that. Of course, there are people who had criminal backgrounds that came as part of the Mario boat lift. And many of the people featured on this podcast were in jail while the Mario boat lift occurred. They were in jail for things though, like stealing food to feed themselves and their family, smoking marijuana, other petty thefts. There are a number of people um, in Cuba, members of the LGBTQ plus community who were in jail for living their lives and so when we talk about who prisoners were that were sent over exactly yes there were hardened criminals there were people who did very very bad harmful things murderers but many of the criminals were not hardened criminals but percentage wise Um, really really a tiny very small right exactly so needless to say i wanted to dig into that and yes like things did occur once people left fort mccoy um and you'll read newspaper accounts from like the La Crosse Tribune back in the 80s that talk about how it is a small percentage of people who were wreaking havoc at Fort McCoy um, and just kind of forcing a number of people to live in fear. Um, so I don't know, Omar, do you, like, I mean, there's a lot to dive into when it comes to that. But yeah, the stereotype exists. There is a little bit of truth to it, but that's not who yeah. everyone was. And and we got to talk about Scarface, obviously. Oh, my gosh. Omar loves talking about Scarface. <laughs> well, I, I was I was amazed in the podcast. Like, Scarface. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that movie. Go, go, go for it. 
It uh, um, well, it's you know, it it, it I I want to touch briefly on the race aspect first, yeah. uh, because you kind of mentioned that on your previous question. So, um, the first thing that happens is that the Cuban uh, and the Haitian migrants that are are coming at the same time are grouped in this you know Cuban Haitian kind of you know um, a group that is highly racialized by by local and national press. I mean, we read New York Times articles where the common themes are always, you know, uh, uh, Haitians are, are, are lazy, they're sick, they, you know, and these are people that um, in the late 70s and early 80s are, are, escaping, um, are escaping a very uh, um, violent regime. Uh, in in Haiti and and in the case of the Cuban population, you know they're escaping um, uh, economic hardship and and political prosecution and and um, so th- that's the first thing that happens. You're you're you know grouping and you're you're creating a narrative for for a group of migrants based on you know on their um, ethnicity and the, the the racial profiling that takes place. Um, in the 1980s, I mean, there are hundreds of articles from local press that Maureen and I went through Just start by the phrase, a Cuban broke into a house today, <laughs> not a person, not a, a migrant, not a, you know. So um, then uh, the other aspect and, you know, the recent uh, data uh, from uh, research on, on Mariel shows that only 6% of the uh, Mario population were actual hardened criminals. Uh, there was a law passed in 1971 in Cuba called the Cuban Vagrancy Law, which basically put everybody that didn't have a job or wanted to have a job, or um, you could be in jail for listening to the Beatles, you could be in jail for having long hair, um, and this was called ideological diversionism. Uh, by the Cuban state. Basically, you could be in jail for having any sort of small private business that would compete with the economy of the state. It was considered stealing from the government, pretty much. Um, so when when you have, you know, the, the LGTB plus community, uh, writers were being censored, religious people who had religious beliefs that did not align with the uh, policy of the Cuban state. So when you have um, all of those people um, add for McCoy <laughs> without the conditions and, you know, without uh, the, the other fact is that the, the, the majority of the population of Fort McCoy was male and black. And they were between the ages of 25 and 35 years old. You know, you, you put uh, uh, 15,000 people without any explanation of what's going to happen to them to wait for months on end and there is no guidance and there's no you know anxiety builds up and trauma from from uh cultural displacement placement builds up and the uncertainty of course you're gonna have um you know problems there um so but but then the the press is really doing their part in in portraying this population to sensationalizing to, to exactly uh and then three years later in 1983 you know the biggest latino criminal stereotype of all times shows up in hollywood and guess who he is he's a mario refugee um so it, 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 it and and that's that's what we're seeing with scarface you know um all sorts of racial conflict there's a movie that is highly protested by the cuban american community in miami because of the way of the way uh, the scarface is, is portraying cuban americans but no one's talking about the fact that you know there is not a black person to be seen in the entire film you know uh, so it's it's a it's a very interesting uh way in which the Mariel community gets to gets to be uh, um, sick, you know, signaled out of the of the Latino community um, by their criminality, in in particular, with this film and you know with the with the press articles that were circulating. And and you highlight the fact that um, in the media, the sensationalizing the uh, stereotypes. What you don't find in the media presentations are the voices of the Mariolitos themselves. 
and speaking. And we have a clip from your podcast because there was a radio station at Fort McCoy um, that was staffed by the Marilito refugees. So we're going to go to that clip just to show a little clip of the radio station at Fort McCoy in 1980. So some Cubans passed the time essentially teaching cooking classes. Others were going to Catholic Mass, something they couldn't do back in Cuba. And others listened to music. Cuban music was broadcast throughout Fort McCoy on a camp-run radio station, WRPC. It was even profiled on NPR's All Things Considered in September 1980. WRPC is the only real link most of the refugees have with the outside world. They depend on radio for national and international news, for the weather, for information about camp activities, for music of their own culture. It is mostly salsa music, but there are occasional songs from the Rolling Stones, the Bee Gees, John Coltrane, Louis Armstrong, or from the refugees' own musical group, formed at Fort McCoy and recorded in the studios of WRPC. And from WRT, that was WRPC at Fort McCoy, 1980. Um, I see you both smiling. T- take it away. Oh my God. I, I have like so much to say about just like that one little moment. One, I have to give a mega, mega shout out to uh, NPR because they were incredible. Their research archives and data strategy team shared all this archival audio with us, which to me is amazing because it really takes us there and transports us back to that moment in time. And also I have to give a shout out to our technical director, Brad Kohlberg, who was just I mean, he's like a scavenger. (laughs) Like he found so much amazing archival audio. Um, What I like about that clip, again, it transports us there, but it's also, we tried really hard to find sounds of the musicians who were playing at Fort McCoy because music is such a big part of this podcast. We came up with so many dead ends and like knowing that we have that little clip of music just to hear those musicians play. It's a moment of joy. Um, it's a little window into what reality was like for them there. And it's, yeah, it's just incredible that, that we just have this piece of audio. And, and there are, I was struck by how many times in the podcast, it's noted that the people who were at Fort McCoy didn't want to talk about Fort McCoy, didn't want to talk about their time there. And right. talk about that. What, 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 what's your insights? Oh man, I've I've done a lot of thinking about that. I think some of them experienced or witnessed things that weren't great. Uh, you know, they talk about fights and avoiding fights. Um, I think there was the hefes. Well, what's that? There were the hefes. The the there were the hefes. Yes. Who, who, Omar, you can probably talk about that a little bit more. Um, yeah, the hefes. I, they, so they were this uh, security force of elders who were refugees and, you know, the U.S. government was having a hard time, I think, just figuring out who was who and how to really, like, navigate this these cultures and whatnot. And so they put these jefes in charge and it didn't always go well. But, but then there's also a commander who says a lot of stuff was done by the civilian um, employees that there were there yeah. were most of 2000 people in that base who were not cuban mm-hmm. and, and they were responsible for in his words an awful lot of stuff as i recall yeah i think there was a combination of i mean of course there are moments of joy and levity you know we talk about like relationships and friendships that form exactly. working in the kitchen but then these moments of um yeah just like witnessing fights and and assaults that took place um and trying to keep order. And of course, it wasn't all just Cubans who did it. I think there were some people hired from the US who weren't doing great things too. Um, I mean, it's just like any story. It's not just like one-sided. And so, I don't know, Omar, what do you want to add to that? 
I think, uh, I mean, inside for McCoy, um, it's, which I think it's episode five of our podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, to me was the most fascinating, you know, part of this project has been since the beginning, you know, um, collecting images that from, from inside the fort. And it's been challenging because there has been, um, like Maureen said from the beginning, an intention to put the story and the voices of, of the protagonist, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's part of the issue with, with this, image that we were just discussing is that you know these people really have never gotten a chance to speak for themselves and it's uh it was it was the first thing that maureen and i discussed when we set out to do this project like i, I remember saying to her i'm not gonna do this if it's not done this way right <laughs> good good uh but yeah. uh but uh, um and you we were know, on the same page with that <laughs> Right, right, and then, but then we both realized we we came to uh, the realization that it was going to be very difficult because of the trauma involved in the stories. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. reason the reason why these refugees don't want to talk about uh, for McCoy, they don't want to talk about leaving. They don't want to talk about their their trip uh, across the uh, Florida Strait is because there are traumatic experiences, and you know, it took us many years it took me many years even before uh maureen came came along in the project to um to earn the trust of these people and and and, and this you know it's, it's the legwork that you have to do uh with anything that that you set out to do it's is giving them a right is is inviting them to you know the showing up for the music shows and the, the, a lot of what we do uh is also help these refugees uh, day by day, living their lives, you know, solving issues for them. They answer questions for us. We answer questions for them. So it's really a relationship of, of collaboration. And, and I think that's, that's what um, made this project successful. You know, the idea that they, they had uh, the trust and they bought exactly. in our idea. Um, and um, one thing that we really saw by the end of the project was, you know, their, their, how conscious they had become, this community had become much more united and conscious about the goals of, of our project in, in terms of advocacy. You know, they, they, they really gained a lot more knowledge about what actually had happened to them in, in terms of discrimination. Um, and um, um, it, the, the, the stories inside the fort are, are fascinating precisely because of that, because you see what hospitality looks like from the people's perspective you know the, the 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 we always think about the government as that institution that wants to provide the hospitality in an organized way you know with the jefes this is this is fema which was who was the, the running the operations in the camps trying to come up with a with a organized structured solution to a problem that ends up being solved by people-to-people relations you know the, exactly the, the majority of the things that we see as productive in this in this historical period come out of the relationships that were developed between uh, camp personnel and refugees at the personal level and you've got um, some beautiful stories of that mm-hmm. in this podcast really touching beautiful stories thank you yeah I mean I, I, highlighting the positive is just as important as highlighting the negative, Mm -hmm. like going into this, um, you know, as we talk about trauma as a journalist, I try to be super mindful of that with any story I do. And it's something that Omar and I talked about along the way. And in the many interviews that we did with the different people featured in this podcast, I was mindful of that with every conversation. If I can tell that someone doesn't want to talk about and go down that path, I'm not going to push it Mm -hmm. because I don't want them to have to relive moments that they don't have. They don't want to because what is, I mean, it just becomes like trauma porn for the rest of us. And like, that's not necessary. Um, You can still tell this story without diving into hyper traumatic details. Um, So yeah, I think that's one thing that we thought about when, when talking about trauma, but yeah, I think balancing that with the positive and the, and the levity and the love, because there is, a lot of love behind different moments of this podcast. Like when you talk mm-hmm. about 
different relationships between sponsors and refugees. Like there's a lot of love there and people who really tried hard to make the lives better for the refugees once they settled here, like Ricardo Gonzalez, who WRG listeners are probably very familiar with. A former um, a host who he's been a correct. host. Correct. Yep. Yes. Um, you know, he's someone who tried really hard to make uh, a good life for a number of refugees who came to Port McCoy because he was just heartbroken by the situation they were in. So there is there are moments of love uh, to balance out the the really tough situation that many of them went through. Exactly. We we invite listeners to call in with your questions and comments for Maureen McCollum and Omar Granados, the creators and co-hosts of Uprooted, the WPR podcast on the Cuban American uh, Mariel Boatlift. Um, let's go to another little clip from your podcast. Um, I think we've got one about a father and son meeting at Fort McCoy. Let's hear about that. Miguel and Washington younger brother. At Satori Arts Gallery in La Crosse, Armando Rodriguez is looking through a thick stack of papers. He's not a 16-year-old trying to survive at Fort McCoy anymore. He's in his 50s and has a good job in Madison. In this moment, the normally chatty, chill guy is silent. For about 20 minutes, he's been going through this seemingly mundane stack of papers with a bunch of names and numbers. But all these documents are blowing Armando's mind. This is a list of every single Cuban refugee who came through Fort McCoy. He's reflecting on his time there. And... In the midst of his search, I found my father's name so far. You found your father? Yeah. Guillermo Rodriguez Nande. Can you read the rest of the line for us? Who? Can you, or like, uh, like the name of the city? And no, he, Havana, Havana. Mm-hmm. His birthday? 1036? But this is a number. What does it feel like seeing your dad's name on that list? Wheel. That was a very powerful moment that you shared. Um, talk about that. You were there. Omar, this was a big, this was a big moment. Um, do you want to talk? This was like your big, one of your big wall moments. Yes. Um, for me, yeah. I mean, um, Armando is not a small man. He he's he's uh, six feet something tall and uh, I don't know two hundred and sixty pounds something like that. He's an impressive uh, and and this is a this is a moment for me when when I saw that man shaking, uh, looking at you know coming coming full circle in a story that uh, we are helping him. Um, um, you know, it's a story of of finding himself, finding his roots, finding uh, the, the name of his father on this book. Um, you know, this was completely unplanned. We'd, we'd been interviewing him and we asked him to come along to meet Satori. And um, at the same time, Satori and, and, and Armando know each other from uh, the camp, the youth camp. Armando is, is um, came uh to the United States in the in the boat lift when he was 16 years old, so this is a um, a life transformed by by the Maria Alexis. Um, he has uh, he attempts to reconnect with his father inside for McCoy, and uh, you know his father uh, leaves the camp to move to New Jersey, and they never see each other again. And this this time when he's reading the name of his father in the book. Um, is I think the the time when he reconnected with his dad uh, one final time, and we were there to witness it. It was, you know, it was a it was a powerful moment uh, for me as you know somebody who also left, also left, lost my father uh, as a migrant. So it it was I had a special connection to Armando there and. Um, you know, to see his reaction was was very powerful for me. And to have you two share it with me, all of us in the podcast. Thank you. Um, we have a caller, Terry, 
who welcome to WRT Terry you're on the show hi when I was listening to the podcast last week I noticed that one of the gentlemen who was interviewed had to be um, translated and I wondered if after 30 years he's managed to um, find a home in a Spanish-speaking uh, community and how the 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 Mexican Spanish speakers who are primarily are here um, have been supportive or reacted to people from uh, Cuba who got here under different political circumstances. So I will take my answer off the air. Thank you, Terry. Take it away. So sh- she's asking about Armando Rodriguez, who we were just talking about. He can speak English as well. Um, when he did that interview with Omar, they were just like casually sitting in a hotel interview is like very impromptu. And so that's why I'm assuming the two of you were speaking Spanish. And because yes. he shared so much in a short amount of time, we just went with that interview. And so while all of these interviews could have been conducted in English or Spanish, um, since the podcast was produced for Wisconsin Public Radio and most of our listeners are uh, primarily English speakers, that's why we went with the English. Um, mm-hmm. I will note Please. that all of our digital articles are written in English and Spanish. Um, I would love to see a day where we could have done this like also audio-wise in Spanish, but we don't have the resources for that. But I'm very happy that at least digital articles are in Spanish. So where, where can people say, find that? Where can people find that? Oh, yes. If you go to WPR.org slash uprooted, all um, eight episodes are there, plus the trailer and a photo slideshow. And so when you click on any of the articles, you'll see right at the top, it'll say episode one tr- translation. Um, so you can click on that. But as far as like Armando finding a Spanish speaking community, he's still good friends with a number of the Cuban refugees in this podcast, mm-hmm. um, they all get, you know, he, he lives here in Madison, but he travels back and forth to La Crosse. And then as far as like the Mexican American community welcoming the Cubans, I'm not sure about that. I'm sure there's friendships around. Uh, uh, yes, there is, there is solidarity, um, uh, not, not many similarities um, in terms of, uh, you know, socioeconomic uh, status and, and cultural, of course, but uh, we do see uh, up here in Wisconsin, obviously, much more uh, solidarity because there's few <laughs> uh, of us uh, uh, migrants from Spanish-speaking um, origins. Uh, you know, if, if you move down to a community like Miami, you'll see a lot more division between different communities of Mexican or, or Cuban or um, and much more discrimination within the the the. Latino and Hispanic communities uh, per se, but um, I think it's a lot more um, uh, friendlier uh, up here in Wisconsin just because there's, there's fewer of us. And every time you hear somebody speaking Spanish anywhere, anywhere in Wisconsin, you want to just grab him and give him a hug and say, who are you? Tell me everything about your life. At least that's what I do. <laughs> that is great. You know, we've only got about four minutes, four minutes left. And I'm wondering about the lessons from the Mario Boatlift and this whole experience, the lessons for immigration today, um, for U.S. policy, for what's going on. There's not a, not a fair question. That should be another hour program. <laughs> yes. But but it seems With that probably other experts. <laughs> but it seems that th- th- this hints at um, we like to see ourselves as some sort of welcoming nation of immigrants, and mm-hmm. the reality is a little different. I think for me, I mean, one of the motivations for doing this podcast and honestly, the motivation for doing my job in general, why I got into radio was to help people understand everyone around us. So helping each other understand what our lives have been like, what has a person gone through and how have those experiences impacted who they are and why they behave a certain way. Um, and I think it's really powerful that we can do that through radio stories because it is mm-hmm. such an intimate medium exactly. that you can really get to know someone. Um, and so, yeah, my takeaway when it comes to, I guess, immigration policy or refugees is just before judging someone, think about what it is that they've been through um, throughout their lives and, and maybe try to think about how those different situations have impacted 
who they are, why they behave away, why they like certain types of food or music or maybe why they don't have like patience to wait for you or anything like that. So that's my takeaway. I know that doesn't dive into like U.S. immigration policy, but, you know, on a person person level, these are things that we can think about. Omar, any thoughts? I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, we could spend another hour talking about this, but um, just in very simple terms, I I, <laughs> I was um, the, the, to me, this this podcast is a story about home and it was a story about Wisconsin. You know, mm-hmm. we we started talking about Cuban and Cuban immigration and then leaving Cuba. And at one point, I think I did. I had a the, you know, a change in my in my perspective. I think, and, and and I realized, well, this is this is a Wisconsin story. What are we doing here? Uh, because you know, when we, when you talk about when you talk with these men that we interviewed, and, and unfortunately we we couldn't interview any women in our podcast, um, they you realize that they really see Wisconsin as their home, um, and uh, it's it's you know it's beyond their cultural resistance and beyond their resilience mm-hmm. as as a community um these these people love wisconsin um so um that was our our biggest to me that was my biggest you know this is a story about uh somebody who, who had the strength and and the, and the, didn't get a choice to pick home many times we say i, I get asked the question why did you pick why did you come to Wisconsin? Why did you, you know? And my response is always to laugh and say, "Did you, did you think I got a choice? You know, <laughs> the, what makes you think that I did? I had a choice, you know." And this is the case for many migrants in the world. You know, sometimes you're just sent to a place, and you have to make your place that home. And my message would would be, what can we learn? from those communities that come to us rather than what we always do, which is try to teach them how to live in the United States. That's so, a great let's, point. Let, let's, let's switch the focus to what can you teach me and what can I learn from you? So listening, learning, and being a good partner and welcoming. That's a beautiful story. Um, you know, this podcast has eight episodes. We probably touched on just a minority of them. There is oh, yeah. so much more to talk about. The the limitations of a 54-minute show here. So I want to say thank you as we head out to Professor Omar Granados of UW-La Crosse and WPR's Maureen McCollum. Their podcast, Uprooted, check it out. It's on the WRT website. There will be links. And I want to thank you both for being here. We've got 30 seconds so I can say thanks to Chuck, who's been the mastermind behind the board, and Jade, who's the mastermind behind everything, and Sholly, who is the foundation upon which we stand here. Shali Pittman, thank you. And you listeners and supporters, tomorrow there's a day of donations. It's our winter pledge drive for uh, the birthday tomorrow. So bring your money tomorrow. Until then, thanks, everybody. And if, if uh, you stick around, we'll talk after the show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, sir. WB, thank you so much. You're welcome. BBC coming up. Thank you.